Okay. Well, let's pray because I need it. And if I need it, trust me, you do. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I ask that you would use the preparation, the words of wisdom that I have gleaned from many, many others while preparing for this sermon. Lord, I uh, ask that you would open up your word to us, that it would be life. And not just life for now, but life everlasting, because your words are truth and they are life. In the name of our most holy Savior, who loves us, died for us, and rose again, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So I'm assuming, as I look across the crowd here, that everybody here would like to go to heaven. I mean, anybody not want to go to heaven? Let's, I'll make it even broader. If there is a heaven, is there anybody here who would not like to be there? All right. All right. I think we all want heaven, even if we don't realize it. Most people, I think, if they looked inside of their hearts, they would know that they do want, and, and honestly, that they want very, very badly something that they can't quite grasp. They can't get their arms around in this world. I want you to think about maybe the first time you fell for somebody, the first time you fell in love. I remember the first time that I fell in love. I literally had a physical, uh, like a lightning bolt go through my chest when I saw her across the basketball court. I mean, it was, she was taking photographs of the basketball game. I was probably sitting the bench on the other side, and um, it was like a lightning bolt hit me. I mean, the promise of young love is amazing, is it not? We love those first 12 to 16 weeks of a new relationship, if you know what I'm talking about. I think there's a threshold of 12 to 16 weeks where reality begins to set in, and then we're going like, what happened? What happened? I mean, it, it had so much potential to be everything that I've ever dreamed of. And, and all of a sudden, even though it's still good, maybe, even though it's still very good, it, it, it's, we, it's like we're seeing the ship sail off into the horizon going, wait, not quite yet, just a minute. I don't want to have to work this hard. So the same thing happens, I think, when we choose careers for the first time or we go into certain fields of study in college that really, really excite us, you know. I remember uh, going into to secondary education as a profession when I, and, you know, I mean, I was good. I wowed the teachers. I wowed the class. I brought my guitar. I sang. I had handouts. I had all sorts of stuff, you know. And then the reality of the classroom came, and it was a whole different story. I remember the reality of the classroom and, and the joy of, of learning about how to teach young people just being at odds. And it was kind of a death, really. Or, or I think even when it comes to friendships, 
You know, you're walking down the road of life, you look to your right or your left, and all of a sudden you see somebody walking there next to you, they have the same desires, they have the same thoughts, they have the same philosophies, the same passions, they like the same sports, like going to the same movies, you're going, yeah, we are going to be friends forever. And then, no, I mean, seriously, like, we're going to do life together, you know, we're two people standing shoulder to shoulder looking out and going, that's the way the world ought to be. And it's wonderful, you know. Until it isn't. <laughs> now, now, even in the best of friendships, though, I think something begins to kind of fade away. You, you realize they're, they're not what you thought at first. And even in the best of, of relationships, uh, like a marriage, I mean, sometimes you realize after a while it's not all that it was cracked up to be. Like, there's got to be more. Or even in your vocation, you're thinking, I wanted to change the world, and I really love what I'm doing, and I love the topics, and I love these kids. And I, but, but it's just that there's something more that's missing. Now, there's two ways of dealing with this dilemma. Actually, there's three ways of dealing with the dilemma. Two of them don't work. The first is what I'll call, uh, and actually what C.S. Lewis calls, the fool's way. And, and what that is, is that you put the blame on the things themselves. You put the blame on your friend. You put the blame on the job. In my case, maybe on the principal who is a jerk. Or upon the parents of the kids who don't know how to help them with their homework. Or upon your spouse because he or she isn't living up to what they promised they would live up to when you got married. I mean, do you guys remember Tom Cruise jumping up and down on Oprah Winfrey's couch just several years ago? Was it five years ago? It wasn't very long ago, right? He was so excited about Katie Holmes. They got married. His third wife, number three, all right? And uh, something happened because this week, you know, the Internet is abuzz with Tom and Katie's divorce. So, my guess is we may see a wife number four in the future. I don't know. But one way is to look and to blame your job, your friend, your spouse for the fact that it's not quite what it meant to be. The next way that really doesn't work very well is to just become a cynic. You become disillusioned. Something like a spiritual zombie where you don't care. You just don't expect that much out of life anymore. I'm old now. I know better. I'm not going to be suckered in to any friendships that take up my time. I'm not going to be stupid and fall for another guy like I have before. It's just done. And you know, I think that would work for most of life if uh, it weren't for the fact that we live forever. <laughs> if it weren't for the fact that you've never met a mortal person and that you're not mortal, that would work. 
So the question comes up, is infinite happiness really available? Is it really there? Is it really waiting for us somehow, somewhere, someplace? Which brings up the third way to look at this dilemma. And for that, I'm going to go to C.S. Lewis and quote him directly. The Christian says, we'll pick that up. The Christian says that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. But if I find, and this is where we pick up the screen, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made, is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfies it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others find the same. And that's from mere Christianity. Now, here's another level of the dilemma. If this is true, if there are desires that are placed within us that will never be fulfilled in this lifetime, that even the best marriage, the best friendship, the best job, the best neighbors can fulfill, then how can we be content in a world where things don't always go well, where they don't go the way we want them to? How can we be content even in that world? A world where you go to work every day and your hourly income after 40 hours of work is not enough to pay all of your legitimate bills. A world where we have to deal with sickness and the death of young parents where we have obstacles to doing the good things that we want to do not only for us and for our family but for the city and the state and the world at large. I mean, how can we be content in a world like that if we're built this way to long for something beyond another world. Now, if anybody had a good reason not to be content, a guy we've been talking about for the last several weeks, it would be the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a man 
who loved Jesus, was doing God's will, mind you, and then gets arrested and put into a Roman prison somewhere in the Roman Empire. He's got a guard chained to him 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. A Roman guard. They didn't have females in the military back then. They didn't have underarm deodorant. They didn't have breath mints. They didn't bathe on a very frequent basis at all. And Roman guards were not known for their compassion when it came to giving you a little slack in the rope or the chain. Wouldn't it be easy for Paul to be mad at God and to complain, look, I'm doing all this stuff for you. How come my life sucks so bad? But Paul had a different attitude. If you've been paying attention, Philippians is called the epistle of joy. In Philippians 1, Paul says that even though he's in custody because of his faith in Christ, he rejoices that the gospel of Christ is still being preached by others on the outside. Even if they're doing it for bad motives, he doesn't care. He's happy about that. He's rejoicing in that. In chapter 2, he says, even though I myself am being poured out like a drink offering, I rejoice that you Philippians are working out what it means to live in relationship with Jesus with a degree of fear and trembling. That's wonderful. That brings joy to my heart that you're doing so well. In Philippians 3, he says, even though there are people in the community, most of them actually, who are living as enemies of the cross of Christ, I rejoice that our citizenship, you Philippians and me, is in heaven. And that we are eagerly waiting for a Savior, Jesus Christ, to return from there. I rejoice that someday, when He comes, He will transform these lowly bodies that we have into bodies that are immortal like His glorious body. Looking forward to that. I'm so excited about that. Praise be to God. He's rejoicing. And in the beginning of chapter 4, which we've already gone over, he says, no matter what you're going through, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what your circumstances are, you should rejoice in the Lord always. And in case we didn't get it, he makes it the same point again. Again, I say rejoice. Instead of being, in some ways rightfully, the most ticked off, unhappy man on the face of the earth, he probably is the most joyful man that anybody knew, in spite of his circumstances. Which just goes to show that when God is in your life, you don't need a lot of other stuff to make you happy. He goes on in verse 10. Look at this. He says again, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, Paul had to be a hard guy to track down and pin down. I'm just saying. He, he's going on all these missionary journeys. 
You never know where he's going to be shipwrecked or waylaid or stoned or, you know, detained in a prison or, you know, who knows what, bitten by a viper. I mean, all these things happen to him, right? So he's kind of hard to find. And if you're the Philippian church and you want to help this guy who planted your church, you know, you really want to help him. First of all, you've got to find him. And, and, you know, somehow they found out that he was in prison. And so they sent this guy, we'll find this out more uh, next week when Craig Blomberg is here preaching. This guy named Epaphroditus comes with a gift from the Philippian church because they finally located him. Epaphroditus. Anybody here is pregnant, that name is not taken. So uh, we would have, you know, only one Epaphroditus. Call him Ep, maybe. Anyway. So Epaphroditus comes, finds Paul, brings this gift from the Philippian church, and Paul is overjoyed. Paul says that he rejoices that at last you've renewed your concern with me because you could actually find me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And then he goes on to explain what he means. He goes, look, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I've learned to be content. Jesus is his portion. That's where he gets his kudos. That's where he gets his encouragement. That's where he gets his condolences. That's where he gets his wounds salved, his emotional trauma healed. He is okay just with Jesus. And he means that. He's okay just with Jesus. He's like the guy that C.S. Lewis was talking about. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. And the Apostle Paul knew what it was to live in plenty or live in want. He was a fairly well-to-do Pharisee in the Jewish community, pretty well respected. He probably wasn't bad off financially. He knows what it meant to have plenty. And he knows what it means not to have anything, obviously, sitting in this prison cell. And he's saying, you know what? It's okay. He's going, I'm glad that you guys are sending me something. Really, really glad about that. Just want you to know, Jesus has got me covered. Now, here's an aside. Don't you just love people like that? I mean, really, if you're going to give to somebody, this is the kind of person you love to give to. Because whatever you give is bonus. Now, you ask them over for dinner, super grateful. You ask them out for a cup of coffee, just as grateful. Why? They don't need your dinner. They don't need your coffee. They don't even need your friendship. Really, I mean, it's, it's almost a gift to you. And the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Other translations will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And honestly, what the Greek says is all things. And so it's become one of those, as Evan said last week, coffee mug verses, right? 
that we put on coffee mugs. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Yeah. You know, put it on our T-shirts. And I'm thinking, like, can I be a forward for the Denver Nuggets through Christ who strengthens me? I'm just wondering at, you know, 58 years old, is that possible? Can I do that? Can I be a NASCAR driver on the street through Christ who strengthens me? Can I do that? (laughs) I mean, let's get more ridiculous. Can I have a baby on my own without the help of a woman through Christ who strengthens? You know what? I'm thinking that's not what Paul means. I'm thinking that this is one of the most misused verses in the entire Bible. I'm going to gut it up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know, and you're, you're there, you know, you're in junior high, and you've got to do the rope climb all the way to the top of the rafters of the gym. You're this, you know, out of shape, overweight, pimply, you know, braced kid, and, you know, you are going to climb up that thing, right? It's like, ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. I don't care how much faith you have, you know, unless Jesus wants to do a miracle for whatever reason, it isn't going to happen. That's not what he means. The new NIV actually does a better job, I think, of translating, and it says, I can do all this, Through Christ who strengthens me. All this. What's all this? Look at the context. I can be in plenty. I can be in want. I can be high. I can be low. I can be well fed. I can be hungry. I can be free. I can be in prison. I can be working with churches all over the globe. Or I can be stuck in a prison next to a Roman guard. That's what he means. That's how the verse is supposed to be translated and applied. All right? That's it. So whatever your circumstance, whatever you're going through, the difficulties in life or the joys in life, you can do all those things through Christ who strengthens you. Because I'll tell you what, some of the most difficult times in your life are going to be the successful times. It is hard to keep your head level when you are experiencing success in the business world, success in the academic world, success in relationships, success financially, you start to spin off and you become some weird kind of dude or some weird kind of gal. You just do. Because unbroken success outside of Christ can make you a monster. You know people like this, right? Remember the people who weren't cool in junior high and then you got to high school? Remember when they were your friends in junior high and then they got to high school and they forgot about you? You've got to be careful. You can do all things, all things through Christ who gives us strength. All right. Now, God never intended us to find ultimate satisfaction in anybody or anything except himself. 
the deck is rigged. The deck is rigged. As been said many times, it's almost as if he's created this God-shaped hole in your heart, in your soul, that only he can fill exactly right. Everything else you try and stuff in there isn't going to quite work. If you could find happiness anyplace else, let's just suppose that you probably could. If you could find happiness anyplace else, you would stop trying to seek him. And that's not what he wants. So he loves us enough not to let that happen. It's like this life is one giant appetizer. I love appetizers. Go out to eat with me sometime. I love the apps, you know? I love them. I never know whether to pray before the appetizers. However, normally I forget and I pray before the meal. Unless the appetizer is so good that I just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, with every bite. I don't know why I say these things. Anyway, this whole life is like one giant appetizer. And, and the big meal is coming. The, the wedding banquet in the sky, in heaven, that we're made for. God doesn't want us to fill up on, on, on appetizers. He wants us to desire him. But have you met people who had never discovered that truth? That they're not meant to be filled up with what's in this life? Have you ever met people who are trying desperately to fill up the emptiness inside with the things that they encounter on a daily basis? Money, things, sex, relationships, friendships, people, Houses, cars, grades. It's depressing after a while, isn't it? Because you don't know what to do with those people. They don't know Jesus. They don't know the source of life. They're, they're not taking a Christian view of things. When I was in college, um, this troubled me because I care about people. So I wrote a poem about Arthur at the bulletin board, intent, the same way he pretends to study at lunch. Arthur sees me. To be polite, I say, hi, Arthur, how you been? But he wants more. I see it pushing up under the skin on his face. But more would spring Arthur's Dodge Duster and how the New York Knicks are doing and Air Force after graduation and how he's really going to study now. His financial troubles, his knee operation, his misanthropic boss, his hassles with the old lady and the girl who doesn't care. His eyeballs jerk back and forth across my face, struggling to restrain my step. If I let him, he'll, he'll clutch me. He'll suck on my sympathy for his Dodge Duster until he has it. All of it. 
and leaves me like the girl who doesn't care. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. When I was a lifeguard and they teach you how to rescue people, they say be very, very careful when you approach the people in the water because they're frantic. They want to live. They're looking for anything they can get on top of. And they see your head on top of the water and they will try and jump on top of you. You know what we did? So you had to dive down and approach them from their feet. Literally, I would dive down. I would find the feet. I would grab them and take them until I, and I'd grab them in this cross chest hold and I would hold them fast because they'd be struggling trying to get on top of me. And that can't happen because that happens, we're both going to go down. What those people don't realize is they need a life buoy. They need a life jacket. They need a boat. They need a rock that they can climb up on, and it ain't you. The best you can do is grab a hold of them and somehow, by sheer force of strength and will, drag them through the water to a place where they can finally stand up. And I want to say that I feel that way about people who don't know Jesus. You are extremely attractive to people who have no hope. You are. I have known guys who only wanted to date Christian girls. Why? Because Christian girls are nice. Christian girls keep their promises. Christian girls don't cheat on you. Christian girls tell the truth. Now, why the Christian girls are dating those guys is another sermon. So, we won't go there. But... They desperately need somebody to buoy up their life. Because there ain't nothing there, and they know it. Nothing is satisfying. And they're hoping that you will too. But the truth is, you won't. And they'll bring you under along with them. Unless you lead them to the rock that is higher than the both of you. Now here is the rub. I know Christians who act the same way. I know Christians who act like they don't have a rock to lean on, to stand on. I know Christians who who act like they don't have a true friend who sticks closer than any brother or any sister. I know Christians who, who act like God has forgotten them, and they are going to sink to the bottom of the lake. And I'm going, why? Why is that? If you're like me, you've been through some pretty difficult times in your life. And, and, and you've leaned on Jesus, and even though maybe you don't understand how it happened, 
He came through for you. You came through with your faith intact. And you discovered that you had this treasure all along that you didn't know you had. Kind of like William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst was one of the wealthiest men uh, at the beginning of the, the 1900s. He was a uh, newspaper man, uh, the Hearst syndication of uh, newspapers and magazines. Uh, and he was a collector. He loved artwork. He loved statues. He loved things that were beautiful. And so he collected them because he had a lot of money. It was before income tax. He was doing great. Now, it is told that Hearst was reading one time a description of a valuable art item, and he sent his agent, because he had people to do that, to go find it. He so wanted this art item. So he sent this guy out to go find it. Guy looked for months. Finally came back. Lo and behold, the surprise of Hearst, the priceless masterpiece, was stored in none other than his own warehouse. He'd been searching all over the world for a treasure that he already possessed. Had he even looked or read or searched out the catalog of his own treasures, he would have saved himself a lot of wasted time, energy, and money. And I know Christians like that. It's almost like they're practical atheists for a while. So, taking this back to the Apostle Paul, here's a guy who knew that he didn't need a lot of other stuff because he had Jesus. He knew he had a treasure down deep inside. He didn't need anything else. You know, you've got to know people who have plenty of money, plenty of things, but they're still not satisfied. They're always looking for the next thing, right? One of the things that always has intrigued me about Scum of the Earth is that, you know, we weren't looking for a building at first. I didn't even want a building. Seriously, I did not want a building because buildings are a pain in the ass. Forgive my uh, biblical language. <laughs> buildings take a lot of time and effort and then when you have them, there's all this responsibility of how to use it correctly. And I thought, let's just use other people's stuff. That would be so much better. You know, let them worry about that. Let them worry about water bills. You know, let them worry about... I really felt content in Jesus. I really did. And I think most of us did, except for Tim Dunbar. And I think God used him to bring this building to us. I mean, for us, it was value-added. I mean, the fact that we didn't want this building, we could walk away if it didn't work out. I mean, we bought this building the day before it went to auction. 
And I had no idea whether or not we would ever get the money together to, uh, to buy it. I mean, literally, I'm waiting in the land and title office for a $250,000 loan from a bunch of Christian business guys to a church called Scum of the Earth. Why they decided to do that is beyond me. But they sent it, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm, we're just grateful. It's like, don't need a building? Got one. Awesome. Why? Because Jesus is everything. Here's another clue. Like, I love being a pastor. Absolutely adore every day I get to spend being a pastor. Those first few months, those first couple years, I thought scum was going to end. Every time Five Iron Frenzy went out on tour, I was sure they would come back and there would be no church. Because, you know, they were the draw. Let's face it. But here was my attitude. Okay, God, whatever. I mean, if scum of the earth ends tomorrow, Lord, I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to say, what's next? What's next? It's not about scum of the earth. It's about you and me and what you're doing through me on the earth. That's the attitude that you should have with everything. The job you have now, it should be gravy. It should be frosting on the cake because the cake is Jesus. The mashed potatoes are Jesus. Oh, I'm getting bad. This is terrible. All right. <laughs> this morning, this morning, <laughs> this morning we were having communion. We're going to have communion here pretty soon too, right? And I'm going like, all we need is Jesus. We're going to take communion here in a little bit, right? And it's symbolic of that's all we need. All the other stuff, it's like a layer of jelly on top of the communion bread. And I thought, that sounds heretical. But you know what I'm getting at. You don't need the jelly. You just need the communion bread. You just need Jesus. His bread, this body broken, this blood spilled for the forgiveness of sins. That's all we need. That's all we need. I saw a Tozer quote that I love. Let me read it. I find that many men and women are troubled by the thought that they are too small and inconsequential in the scheme of things. But that is not our real trouble. We are actually too big and too complex, for God made us in his image, and we are too big to be satisfied with what the world offers. Men and women are bored because... They are too big to be happy with that which sin is giving them. God has made them too great. Their potential is too mighty. God has made us for himself. And our glory is to enjoy Him forever. God has made us 
for himself. And our glory is to enjoy him forever. That's why we can be content in every situation. Because we can do all these things in Christ who strengthens us. Please pray with me. Lord God, as we pause to celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord, bring to mind that Jesus is all we need. He's all we need. We need nothing else. Everything else is just added joy. Thank you for all those things. Amen. Now, at Scum of the Earth, when we have communion, you uh, will come up to the station, and uh, there'll be two people. You'll take the bread from one person, uh, and then you'll dip it into the cup. You can eat it right then. You can go back to your seat. You can say a prayer. And we're going to have folks available back here in the prayer room where those multicolored lights are. So if there's an issue that you would like to pray over, you know, maybe um, you've been acting like Tom Cruise. Maybe you've been acting like a cynic and you want to act more in line with your Christian beliefs about the reality of, of, of this earth and your life. Please feel free to go back there and and pray. Amen.